What is Christ's church? We are looking at it this morning in our text. Our text is a study of the birth of the new covenant church. We are studying the acts of Christ's continuing ministry. That's the better title. The acts of Christ's continuing ministry. Where from heaven ascended at the throne room of God, he has sent out his spirit. He poured it out at Pentecost. And the result was an inspired sermon, an apostolic address that we do well to not only hear, but we do well to call our ministers to preach like this. What we hear in this sermon is that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Christ is the yes and amen of Scripture. He is the truth of God's Word. And hearing Christ proclaimed, the result is a new covenant community who devote themselves to the life of the covenant and spread its message beginning in Jerusalem, as we're going to study and see, to the ends of the world. And so if we're ever going to ask this question, we should ask it now. We should ask of this text, what is Christ's church? What is the church of Christ? I want to answer that question this morning with Acts 2, beginning verse 37. And we hear that Christ's church is a place for hearing. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were listening to this inspired sermon. They were listening to preaching. When they heard the preaching of the word, when they heard this, this word, they were cut to the heart. Now, in the Greek, that cut to the heart is a passive verb. They didn't cut their own hearts. Another cut their heart. The word cut their heart. The preaching of the word cut their heart. That's why the Bible calls the word a sword, right? It is the sword of the Lord that separates, that cuts out. That we might be living sacrifices to God. Preaching cut their heart. And we find here that, te- that the church, the church starts with teaching, which Calvin called the soul of the church. If preaching of the word is the soul of the church, then Christ is the heart because preaching is Christ crucified. True godly preaching is preaching of Christ. And this preaching of Christ cut their hearts. It made them obey. Cut to the heart, they were made to obey, Acts 37. Now when they heard this, 237, when they heard this word, they were cut to heart. And they said to Peter, those cut to the heart, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Now notice this text. The Bible is saying here that an external means, something outside of them, that is the pure preaching of the word, created an inborn, an inward desire. And external means caused them inwardly to want to obey. The word of God worked then them to obey the word of God. External means is important to the life of the church. Hold on to that truth. We will be studying it throughout this book. What is the church of Christ? 
It is where the word works. Where the word works, there is Christ's church. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, because they asked, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. Repentance. That's your work. That's the work of putting off your sin, putting off that old man, putting off your sin, putting off death. Repent. By the word, the church of Christ turns us outwardly away from this fallen world, does it not? The word turns us away to put off sin, death, and the devil. But not only repentance, Christ's church is born by water. It is born by water in the word. We hear that we are to not only repent, he says repent, but be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, if repenting is putting off, baptism is putting on. Repentance puts off, baptism puts on. Puts on righteousness. Puts on new life. Now, whose righteousness? Whose new life? Ours? Our own righteousness? Our own conduct? Our own life? No. Listen to Galatians 3.27. I think we must read Galatians 3.27 when we read baptism here in this text. Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Baptism is a union. It is our being clothed in Christ. It is putting on Christ. The act of baptism is being clothed in Christ's righteousness, in Christ's life, receiving the benefits of Christ. Repentance puts off sin. Baptism puts on Christ. Let us put on Christ. And he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's code for justification. The forgiveness of sins. Baptism is a sign and seal of your justification. For by the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are washed away. They are no more as if we've never sinned nor been a sinner. Sins washed away as if we've been perfectly obedient our whole life long because Christ is obedient for us. What is Christ's church? It's the place for the justified. It's the place for the righteous. The righteous who are being made perfect. Therefore, it is a place for sanctification. He said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit through water, through baptism. I know our modern ears don't like that. Modernity, through a subtle Platonism, doesn't like matter to do things efficiently. Plato hated the physical. But not the Bible. God made matter. He likes it. He uses it. The gift of Holy Spirit is regeneration. It's that new life, being born. John 3, 55, Jesus says you must be born by the water and the Spirit. Titus 3, 5 calls baptism the washing of regeneration, being made new. Colossians 2, 12 says in baptism we are buried in Christ and raised in Christ. Galatians 3, the text I read, in baptism we are one with Christ, clothed in his very nature. 
bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. It's not I who live no longer, but Christ. 1 Peter 3 shows baptism as a fulfillment of the flood. The flood ordeal, right? Where the world was washed away of sin and death in a new creation. Truly, that was a picture of baptism. New creation, new life. These are real blessings through baptism that one cannot lose, even if you're unfaithful. Because when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And no one can separate you from the love of Christ. No one, not even yourself. And that truth is a union given to us in baptism. And baptism works because it's not empty. Notice it says, be baptized what? In the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism's power is there in Christ. And so you must look beyond the baptismal waters to Christ. His blood poured out, shed for you, cleansing of your, you of your sins. It's a sign that you must see. You see, baptism is not a sign of faith. Many get that wrong. Baptism is not a sign of faith. It's a sign to faith. It's power is in the name of Christ. Therefore, it is only beneficial to us if we look beyond the water to the blood. And there we find in baptism the gospel. We find in baptism the gospel calling us, calling us to forsake this world, calling us to repent, to put off, and calling us to faith, to repent and put off and to believe in Christ. And therefore, baptism should cause us and call us to this every day. That's why the Reformation, the Reformers, our Reformed Fathers to the man said, we must improve baptism. How do you improve baptism? Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the one in whom you were baptized. And find in these waters a power that doesn't come from yourself, but Christ. You see, Christ's church comes with power, but it is a power veiled through ordinary means. It is a power veiled through ordinary means. You see those means here, do you not? Preaching, hearing, baptism. We're going to see sacrament, the Lord's Supper soon in the same text. Signs and seals, external, ordinary means. The Bible's always had signs and seals, by the way. There was a sign and seal in the garden, the sacramental tree of life held out for Adam, a sign that signified eternal life if he obeyed. You have the sign of the rainbow, right, children? The rainbow after the flood, there was a rainbow, the rainbow telling us that the Lord would not, in his wrath, consume the world again with the flood. But it didn't say anything about fire. Right? Then there's the Abrahamic covenant with the sign of circumcision. There's the Mosaic Covenant with the sign of the Sabbath. They had to earn it, by the way, like Adam in the garden. And then there is the throne of David, the sign of the Davidic Covenant, the sign and seal, and now baptism. And baptism really, truly signs and seals what God promises. 
the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of our sins. What is Christ's church? It is the place where the Holy Spirit works. It is the place where the Holy Spirit works through external, ordinary means. In the Reformed Church, we call these means the means of grace. And now Peter addresses where the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works through these things, the word, baptism. It works repentance. But where does it work? Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and for your children. If you know your Old Testament, that should sound familiar. Do you know your Old Testament? This promise is for you and your children. It is the Abrahamic covenant. So the Jews that were in attendance at Pentecost, they're not hearing anything new right here at least. They're like, oh yeah. You see, little Jewish mothers have gathered with their young every Sabbath to the synagogue, and what did they hear? This promise is for you and your children. No news here. No new news here. Peter is saying God was covenantly faithful throughout your generation, Jews. God was covenantly covenantally faithful throughout their generations. He's covenantly faithful still. This promise is for you and your children. It does begin, that promise was first proclaimed in Genesis 17, 7. Here now, Genesis 17, 7. God says to Abraham, and I will establish, if you do want to turn to your Bibles, this is a good highlighting verse. This verse is totally worth highlighting. Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an ever... How long is this covenant? Everlasting. What does everlasting mean? Does it mean it's going to end with Moses? Does it mean it's going to end when Jesus comes? It's everlasting. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be your God and you will be my children, said the father to Abraham. Listen to Isaiah 44.3. Here's a prophet much later in time, but declaring the same covenant. Isaiah 44.3. We're going to talk about this uh, verse tonight in our evening service in more depth. For I will pour, Isaiah says, 44.3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land. And streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Now look at our text. And look at our text. And read our text and only our text. Peter does not say that God extends the promise of salvation to children who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Look at the verse. What does it say? Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and for your children. The children of those who repent and believe in these children specifically are in covenant with God. Children of believers are in covenant. Children of believers have the promise. Not believing children, but specifically those of the believing parents. They have the promise just as their repenting and baptized parents. For this reason, Paul calls the children of at least one Christian member in the household 
If mom or dad, if even if, mom, even if only mom or dad are a Christian, Paul says the children are what? Holy. And he uses a very distinct word there because he later says that that unbelieving spouse will be sanctified. He uses a different word. That word he uses of the children is a continuation of the Old Testament idea of profane and holy. The unbelieving spouse is profane, sanctified, set apart in his profanity to hopefully one day become a Christian, but the child is holy. This is a continuation of the Old Testament clean and unclean distinction. And the children are clean by means of the Abrahamic covenant. Just as the children in the Old Testament under Abraham were clean, so too the children in the New Covenant. Because who fulfilled the the Abrahamic covenant? Anybody, any wild guesses? (laughs) Want to take a shot in the dark and, oh, maybe Jesus Christ fulfilled the Abrahamic promise. And who might we be promised in baptism? Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul calls the cross Christ's circumcision. On the cross, Christ fully circumcised, fully cut off from the land of the living. He died in your place that you might be baptized, cut out from the land of the living. The land of sin and death to belong to God. Where is the church of Christ? It is where the Abrahamic covenant is administered. It is where God blesses believers and their children. Acts 2.39, for the promise is for you and for your children. And then he adds, and for all who are far off. Is this discontinuity to add, and for all who are far off? First of all, this addition does not take away from the latter. The promise is still for you and your children, but it's also for all who are far off, which is not discontinuity. It is continuity. It is the Abrahamic covenant. It was always blessed to the nations. Listen to Galatians 3, beginning verse 7. Paul writes, Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. In Abraham. This is a fulfillment to the ends of the earth. It is the Abrahamic covenant. It is going from family to family to the ends of the earth. It is the faith of Abraham that is the faith that goes to the ends of the earth. Circumcision, therefore, never belonged to Moses. Because Moses was restricted to one place and one time. But Abraham extends borders. It extends time. And so the new covenant blesses the nations. The Lord calls Jews, Gentiles, and their offspring. Baptism and Acts. Now listen. Baptism and Acts always follows a profession of faith. Baptism and Acts always follows a profession of faith, and so does the principle of covenant succession. That is, the inclusion of believers' children is constant. It is still true, as Peter announced, this promise is for you and your children. The promise for believers and their children is exhibited in the conversion of the baptism of Lydia after she believed 
After she believed the gospel, Acts 16, 16, 15 says she was baptized in her, in her household as well. The whole household included in her faith. Interesting. Where does that household inclusion come from? Abrahamic covenant. Because it's promises for you and your children. Later in the same chapter, we read of the conversion of this jailer, this Philippian jailer. He believed this one dude. And then what does the Bible say? And they baptized his whole household. Where does that come from? Baptizing households. Paul recalls only baptizing one family. Paul wasn't much in a baptism. No, he was. <laughs> he handed it over to ministers. He can only recall one baptism. He says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. If children are included in the covenant of grace under its Old Testament administration, surely they are not excluded in the new covenant, which the, the writer of Hebrews calls a better covenant. But would it be a better covenant if in the new covenant God said, I don't want your children anymore? It's like when your family comes over and they've had enough of your children. I don't want your children anymore. That's why grandparents love being grandparents, right? They can go and dote on them, and then when they get fussy, they go, all right, here, mom and dad. <laughs> it's not better covenant if God kicks out children. So our Belgian confession states, Christ has shed his blood no less for the washing of little children of believers than he did for adults. Now, when you place Christ, now listen, when you place Christ's faithfulness in baptism, and you take away your faithfulness, when you take away your acts and you make baptism gospel, if you make baptism gospel, then it's easy to understand what the Bible says about baptism in our little children. What does baptism say of our little children? It says God loves them. God loves our little ones so much that he wants them clothed in the gospel. He wants to clothe these little ones in the gospel because he loves them so much. He's welcomed them into his presence, into the kingdom Christ says belongs such as these. He's making a point, but the point is worthless if the kingdom doesn't belong to such as these. And so it is not, oh man, I hope, I hope my children believe. Don't ever think that, parents. It's not, well, sorry. Do think that. It is a hope, but that's not really the, the emphasis. The hope isn't, I hope my children believe. Children, listen to me. Children, look up here. Children, it is this. Children, you better believe in Jesus Christ. Every single one of you or else. You better believe in Jesus because you've been baptized in his promise. And children, it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of a holy God. Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's your baptism. Now believe it. And so we can forego some unbiblical notion of age of accountability. We can even follow scripture alone and not add baby dedication. But we can have household baptisms. We can follow the word. Scripture's outline of household inclusion. It has been the good news from the very beginning of the Bible. And your offspring, the Bible begins with offspring. Your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Your offspring with Abraham belong. God has always loved families. 
And he includes families in his church. What is Christ's church? It's a place for families. That's why our families are in church. We have a modern, you know, the modern idea is you separate the children because they're noisy. But the covenantal idea says, that's a new song. Enjoy that music. <laughs> that strange noise. It's not strange noise. That is the little ones singing the prayers to Christ. It sounds like whining to us. But if you hear us sing half the time, you know, you understand. <laughs> it's all beautiful music to God's ears, the families together in worship. We don't separate them. And don't get me started on children's church. Oh, okay, sorry. That's not my text. We'll get there eventually. The church is a place for families, but it's also a definable group. It's a definable group. Look, look at Acts 2.40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. They received the word and they, and they were baptized as the word commands. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at that. That's interesting. There were added. There's a definable group. There's something there about church membership, and we'll, we'll explore that in, in, in ecclesiology later in Acts. But for now, we're given the devotion of the church. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves, this church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Christ's church is where the word is taught. Look at that. And that comes first. The word teaches. And there is the church. It's not, hey, we're going to gather, become a church, and then teach the word. That's the wrong order of things. No, the church that teaches the word becomes the church by the word. We become the church, the teaching of Christ and him crucified. Christ's church is a people of the word, creatures of the word. And the creatures of the word, fellowship. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship refers to the mutual support. It is the giving of one another. It's the tithes, the offerings, the sharing in love and the one another's of scripture together. And also Christ's church is nourished on Christ's body and blood. And they devoted themselves. I love that, devoted. That's what they did. They didn't do anything else. This should be the church's... Uh, you know, a lot of churches want to have these, uh, what are they called? Uh, what's your uh, statement? What you do or why, what's your organizing statement? It's right here. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread. External means, by the way, all of these external means, ordinary means. Ex the breaking of bread here, I think it's the Lord's Supper because Paul or Luke is writing about the things the church attended to. The Lord's Supper. The sacraments, the word and the sacraments. And lastly, Christ's church is devoted to communion with the Lord and the prayers. So these four things characterize the church of Christ. So what is Christ's church? It starts with teaching, hearing, hearing that works, produces repentance, the putting off of sin, calls us to baptism, the putting on of Christ, continuing to call us to baptism. You could say the liturgy is every Lord's Day is a baptism service. Even though there's no water, every Sunday is a baptism service. 
I'll leave you with that one. You can figure that one out on your own. But the church is born. The soul of the church, the church born through the pure voice of the gospel becomes a new creation whose faith is nourished to the sacraments, nourished to serve one another cheerfully and ready to give our lives to God in prayer and expect the extraordinary. Through these ordinary means, the church of Christ receives extraordinary power. And if you take away one of these, you can take away the title, Church of Christ. We must be devoted to doing what God's word commands us to do, and that only. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.